What have you seen in the theaters recently? Um, it's been, I think it's, oh, The, the Invisible Man, I saw that. Uh, okay, that, uh, that's on my list, and I haven't made it to the theater yet to go see it, and I really want to. Yeah, so the recent ones would have been that and Call of the Wild. Call of the Wild was a little bit of a disappointment, unfortunately, but uh, Invisible Man was really solid. Um, I'm not usually a horror guy, but it def- it had a really great, creepy vibe. And um, mm-hmm. Did you see uh, Lee Whannell's previous film, Upgrade? No, but I'd seen, didn't he write Insidious or something like that? Yeah, he's either he's like co-written or at least produced pretty much all of uh, James Wan's films. Yeah, I really liked the first two Insidious films. I haven't seen the third one, but I I haven't seen any of them. James wants to make me uh, doom for the podcast, but I've been resisting. <laughs> Not much of a horror guy. The the first one at least, I, I don't remember much of the second one, but the first one at least was really good until it gets a little bit weird in the third act, but still an overall solid scary flick. Okay. What about you? Um, nothing new uh, as far as like since the last time I podcasted, but to to just have conversation. <laughs> the last things I saw, I saw Harley Quinn: Birds of Prey, uh, which I didn't love, and I saw Jumanji: The Next Level, which I really liked. So uh, that's that's my recent viewings. I have heard like the entire gambit of things on the Harley Quinn movie, just like. From like absolute love to hate to just a lot of in between. It just, I think it depends on your affection for the character, maybe. And I don't necessarily have a lot of affection for Harley Quinn. It's not like I, mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't watch superhero cartoons as a kid. And so I have, like, I actually have the complete Batman animated series and Batman Beyond complete series on the shelf behind me both still in like their original packaging because I haven't watched them yet. So I've seen some episodes here and there and that, that's where Harley Quinn came out, you know, and I, I just no special love for her. I, I liked her in suicide squad. It was like the only thing I liked about suicide squad <laughs> aside from Will Smith and she's good in birds of prey, but the movie overall just wasn't for me. So your mileage may vary <laughs> as far as call of the wild goes. I was hopeful for that movie because I like older Harrison Ford I think mm-hmm. he's only improved with age, honestly. And so I, I was hopeful that he'd give a really good performance. And who knows? Does, does he give a good, he's at least good. a good performance? He's, good. he's one of the better parts. Okay. So then he's still got the grumbly growl, you know, down pat. And uh, it's, you know, it's Chris Sanders, you know, that guy. He's behind the first How to Train Dragons. Yeah. So, uh, Lulu and Stitch. Um, it's kind of, it's a, it's got like a lot of just filmmaking issues and then the choice of the CGI dog, which I understand, you know, they want to make the dog the main character, but mm-hmm. it's also an obviously CGI dog. So you're kind of just wondering why not? I was actually, I, I kind of wish they went the, just the uh, Tintin route. Where it was just all motion capture and you could, mm-hmm. you could have that kind of animal protagonist without the obvious bit, you know, the, uh, the uncanny Valley with the, the main character. Right. And it wouldn't be overly silly either because it would fit into the animation, just like, Tintin with Snowy. Snowy, we talked about, was a a, yeah. a a cute dog character, maybe outside the realm of believability, but not overly so, considering it's still a cartoon. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not a terrible movie by any means, but uh, as a fan of the book, I did miss a bit of the the, the, the violence and brutality of that story. <laughs> it felt very very sanitized it, and Disney. It's not, it was technically a Fox film, but it still felt very you know quote unquote Disney. Uh huh. I mean, I'll probably eventually check it out when it inevitably comes to Disney Plus. But other than that, I might just like check out its score since I really like John Powell. I enjoy the score. 
Yeah, so I, I, I will check it out that way, <laughs> and that's how I'll, <laughs> I'll enjoy it. Well, uh, let's go ahead and transition to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinescope. I am here with Gabe Green, and we are here to talk about a movie that I hadn't seen in a long time, but I still had a lot of affection for. And so I was really glad to revisit it. We're talking about October Sky. How are you today, Gabe? I am doing great. And it's uh, great to be back on this new and improved Cinescope. Yeah, I am so glad to have you back. We had James on last week. Uh, he was glad to finally join the ranks of being a solo <laughs> guest host on Cinescope after doing our Lord of the Rings episodes together. So that's fun. And I am actually drinking coffee out of a mug from NASA that says it is rocket science on it. And I owned this previous to deciding we were doing this movie. So uh, I I am very excited to talk about this well, movie. Well, I'm drinking tea out of a Star Wars uh, mug. Does that count as science fiction? I think enough, it's or? it's it's rocket adjacent, so it works for me. Okay. <laughs> Let's go ahead and have you introduce yourself, Gabe. Remind everybody who you are and what you do. Uh, well, my name is Gabe Green. Along with uh, that fellow James, I co-host the Franchise Fatigue podcast, which is a podcast where we talk about movie series uh, one movie at a time. Uh, we just finished spending a good seven or eight months on the MCU. And then um, we're kind of playing catch up with all the other movies that you know came out in previous franchises we covered. So, um, yeah, I think you got like, Toy Story, uh, other other Star Wars films that came out since, and just a bunch of other Men in Black International. Those We're going to be covering those for the next couple of weeks, so before we start a new series. But yeah, that's our show. We had, you know, celebrating franchise storytelling <laughs> gets a lot of hate nowadays in kind of in movie culture, but we try to, you know, bring up, you know, the, the, the pros of just franchise storytelling. Yeah. Something to, to mention about y'all's podcast is that, oh gosh, I, I sounded so Texan just then, uh, <laughs> about y'all's podcast is that you also talk about like the, the making of the movie and how it came to pass. And that was something listening through your all star Wars uh, catalog recently. I really appreciated was like, how did this movie get made? What went behind it? What were the thoughts here? What were the troubles in production? I really enjoy that part of the discussion even before you get to the review. So I, I really enjoyed listening through those recently and I, I will look forward to hearing your thoughts on the latest star Wars beyond a mini sode and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, honestly, the research that goes into it is some of my favorite stuff because I, I'm learning a lot of that the first time as well. That all said, let's just go ahead and transition into our episode, Don't Keep the People Waiting. We are talking about October Sky. It was released on February 19th of 1999. It was directed by Joe Johnston, who really has quite the filmography. He directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, The Page Master, the original Jumanji film, Jurassic Park 3, Hidalgo, The Wolfman, Captain America, The First Avenger not safe for work, and he was given co-director credit after being brought in to direct reshoots of The Nutcracker and The Four Realms, along with uh, Lasse Hallstrom. So, a lot of great movies under his belt, a lot of great family films. So that was, a, I, I knew a couple of those. I knew The Rocketeer for sure, and I knew Captain America, but I didn't know he did The Pagemaster or Jumanji, so at least not off the top of my head. Uh, it was nice to see that. The screenplay was written by Louis Colick. 
It was based on Rocket Boys, the autobiography memoir by Homer Hickam. And October Sky is an anagram of the title Rocket Boys. Uh, so that's a fun fact. I wonder if they changed the title so they wouldn't think it was a sequel to The Rocketeer. <laughs> that That's a fair point, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> the music is by Mark Isham, who isn't a well-known composer, but he, he does have a pretty eclectic filmography as well. He composed the scores for Point Break, A River Runs Through It, Of Mice and Men, Blade, Varsity Blues, Miracle, Crash, Eight Below, Invincible, the TV series on ABC, Once Upon a Time, Warrior, The Conjuring, 42, and most recently Togo, and he is set to compose the score for the upcoming Bill and Ted Face the Music, and his music here is fantastic. It is really, really great. Oh, I love it so much. And the movie stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Laura Dern, Chris Cooper, Chris Owen, William Lee Scott, Chad Lindbergh, and Natalie Canarday. So... How about you start us off, Gabe? What's your first memory of watching this film, your first experience and sort of your viewing experiences over the years? I don't remember my first time. It's one of those childhood movies that you just watch over and over again and it just becomes ingrained into your childhood. So I really couldn't tell you the first time I saw it, but it was one of those you know go-to films we had as a family that I saw over and over and just fell in love with. I don't believe I've seen it for the last you know, seven or eight years, but it, you know, with this last viewing for the podcast, it, you know, it, it all came back. And I, I think I actually liked it more uh, with this last viewing that I ever have, which I was, I was kind of worried, you know, going back to those old films that the, sometimes they don't always hold up. This one definitely did. This is another one of the movies that was on my list of things that I'd eventually like to talk about. And I don't know why or how it really made it onto that list, to be honest. Because as I was trying to think back to my first experience watching it, I don't remember the context of me watching it for the first time. I didn't own it until I picked it up on Blu-ray within the last year. I don't remember queuing it up on Netflix or anything like that. And I, I don't think I ever did like a school project on it, but I do think my first viewing was school related somehow. So it might have been like one of those movies we put in when a substitute was there or when... I don't know, maybe for like a science class or something like that. So I think it's my, my first watch was related to school in some capacity. I might've caught it on TV or on HBO or something over the years. Uh, and I just remembered liking it. And I guess that's how it made it on the list. I remembered liking it. <laughs> and that said, I think this might, this viewing right now for this podcast might be my only proper beginning to end, sit down, watch the whole thing viewing of the film. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it kind of surprised me because I, I thought I had more history with it until I actually like lingered on it. And then I realized, Oh, maybe I don't. Um, so I really liked this movie and I'd been sort of itching to watch it since seeing Spider-Man far from home last year because Jake Gyllenhaal is in that too. <laughs> and it reminded me how much I love Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> and seeing him young here. And he's just a baby. Yeah. He's so young. He's so young, but he's so still talented. It's, it's amazing seeing how much character he's able to pack into this role and how likable he is as he's likable in every movie he's ever in. It is yeah. so great seeing a young Jake Gyllenhaal here showing so much talent going on to story. Like what is it about the story that really lingers with you? Obviously it's a biopic. So the, the fact that it's based on a true story, I think automatically brings a lot to it, but what beyond that stands out to you? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what drew me to it so much as a kid. I think it's, it's it has this classic feel to it. It just makes it so fun and easy to watch. And, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you watch what you have. And this is one of the movies we had. But 
I, there's something just so effortlessly likable about it all. I think it's incredibly well paced. And so just once you start watching, you just want to keep watching until then it's over. And it's just, it's one of those films that just gives you a lovely, complete experience in one sitting. But then after that, growing up, I think a lot of the themes of how it deals with, you know, family and, and, and growing up and following your dreams and trying to find your own place in the world, maybe when, when the expectations were that you would go a different way, those, as I've become an adult, have actually started to resonate even more with me since having loved it so much as a kid. I typed up a short letterbox review before I sat down to record tonight, and I basically just said that it, it contains the perfect recipe for making me cry. <laughs> uh, the, the story features characters overcoming steep odds, following the guidance of a loving teacher, strained father-son relationship that resolves in the end. Like all, all my button points that really yeah. like make me cry. It, it hit all of them. And I was surprised to find how emotional I was through watching so much of this movie. As a teacher myself, it brings out a lot of the passion I have for my career and the hope that I have in working with students and helping them to achieve their potential. But then I don't have a strained relationship with my father, but those kind of stories always stand out to me as well. In fact, I texted my friend Eric, who has been on the show a few times, and we tend to gravitate towards films with strained father-son relationships. It's just like an ongoing theme. And so I said, hey, you need to watch this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, 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 it contains all the things that we love so much, which is our heart being wrenched out. <laughs> yeah, I talked about uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 with you. And right, yeah. That was a big part of what I loved about that movie. That, that's true. Uh, I didn't even think about that, but that's absolutely true. And so it, it just hits so many things that make me feel things, I guess, to put it simply. Mm-hmm. And I just love the setting. And I mean, just start starting at the beginning of the film, the, the setting, the way it's established, you've got this juxtaposition of the broadcast about the launch of Sputnik interjected with the shots of the coal miners, the people of the town listening on, on the radios. Everybody sort of looks miserable that night when they first see Sputnik passing overhead. Somebody sums up the mindset of this town. Somebody says, there's going to, they're going to be dropping bombs on us from up there. And another says, I don't know why they drop a bomb on this place. Be a heck of a waste of a bomb. (laughs) And so just from the beginning, we get the sense that these people are tired of where they're living. They're tired of living in this small town, separate from the entire rest of the world, breathing in coal dust every day, knowing that they're doomed to work in the, the mines for the rest of their lives or their husbands will be working in the mines for the rest of their lives. If they don't find a football scholarship to get themselves out of the town, all the way that stuff is introduced at the beginning of the film sets the mood and sets this sort of desperate situation that Homer finds himself in and trying to find another way. That shot of the miner listening to the radio of you know, this beautiful sight in the heavens as he's descending into the earth. And then you know, the static finally cuts it off. There's some really, I think, beautiful visual storytelling going on. Just the way that Joe Johnson is able to, you know, just without completely wordlessly to give us this place and that sense of time and you know, the entire mindset that our main characters kind of was born into. Yeah. I do really just have to praise the entire, the the place and time that this film gives us. I think Mm -hmm. Joe Johnson has an incredible gift with period pieces. Are you looking at this or the Rocketeer or Captain America, the first Avenger where this very nostalgic classic Americana that he's able to tap into that this film is really drenched in. I think it, it was something that's always drawn me to this movie. And I think, there's a feeling of, of realness and richness and texture to this movie that I really appreciate. Well, and you know, even though this is set in the 50s and it's very firmly set in the 50s and it, it doesn't try to hide that, 
in the same sense, and I, I think you could say this about those other films by Johnston as well, it has a timeless quality to it mm-hmm. where the the sort of takeaways from the movie or the the things that really ring true about it, those those relationships, the the desire to improve yourself, the desire to thirst after knowledge and your passions, those are so timeless and the setting provides a backdrop for this story, but it doesn't define the story, which I think is a really uh, interesting line to play on that Johnston really does do really well with. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to characters, Homer, let's talk about Jake Gyllenhaal and how fantastic Homer Hickam is in this movie. Well, what do you have to say first? It's just so darn likable. Yeah, he is. You just fall in love with the kid. You want him to get everything he wants. Yes, Absolutely. We see glimpses of his tenacity from the very start of the movie where he's trying for football and he's talking smack to the other team, even though he's (laughs) clearly outmatched and unfit for this kind of activity. We see him smashed again and again and again into the ground. And we learn right after that, that he wasn't trying at football because he loves football. He's trying at football because it's the only way that people in this town get out of the town by getting football Mm -hmm. scholarships. And his older brother is the football star and his father is the the foreman at the coal mine. And so he has these expectations that he's trying to live up to, and he thinks that football is his only way to get there at the start of the film. And so that that shows how sort of desperate the situation really is for him, that he would go for something so strongly that he's really not into it all. Yeah. With this, we get the, with the setting, we get that period of time where there was very, a, a huge culture shift. Before that, you, you imagine his father is probably raised in the Great Depression, lived through World War II, and now you have the rise of, like, teenagers and that, that kind of culture. And so the shift in expectations, that, that just a this kind of barrier between the relationship between him and his father, which is they just they don't get each other. And I really like that the film doesn't, obviously it's on Homer's side, but it doesn't, it doesn't like, stand in judgment of the people of the town or his father. It, it's very, it, it really allows both sides to be, you know, show you know the what what makes them good and you know also while being honest about their flaws it just and I, I yeah i think it does a great job of just giving us very very realistic grounded characters in that way the sort of dawn of homer's desire to pursue rocketry is a really inspiring moment as he's watching sputnik pass overhead that first night and he he expresses this idea that anyone from anywhere in the world could look into the sky and they could see the exact same thing flying overhead that he sees. And for the first time in his life, it makes Colwood feel like it's part of the rest of the world and it opens up the world for him. And so that's why he goes into rocketry in the first place. It's it's like it's a need because in a lot of ways it is for him. Finally, he has an alternative to get out of the city by finding a scholarship through other means than football. But beyond that, it's it becomes a passion for him. It's not just something that he's seeking as a means to an end is I enjoy rocketry and it's going to get me out of here. Mm-hmm. And the just the sort of symbolism of a rocket being something that flies and goes great distances and goes into space and him using it as a ticket to get out of this town is obviously really prominent as well. But seeing him as the film progresses, willing to learn, and we, we see he's not necessarily a great student as far, he's not a learned student, I guess you could say. He's not like naturally smart. He has to work hard for everything he gets. And he shows time and time again that he's willing to learn whatever it takes to build a functioning rocket. 
he sacrifices his social status by befriending Quentin, who is the only mm-hmm. kid at school who can help him to learn these things. He learns welding. He learns complex math to decide the trajectory of rockets. He does so much in the pursuit of his passion, in the pursuit of trying to find a way out of here. Yeah. But at the forefront of everything is his relationship with his father. And there are some really great moments as far as like positive moments between father and son. But for most of the film, we have them butting heads. And what I like about Homer in all those situations, or at least in the latter situations, is that he is quick to stand up for himself and not not talk back to his father in the sense that he's being disrespectful, but he's standing up for himself and what he believes in. And that's the kind of stuff that really gets to me when it comes to these father-son relationships that I love so much in film. Homer looking at his dad, you know, he, he wants his father's love. He wants him to share in his success and his aspirations. There's a moment about halfway through where he says, you know, dad, you haven't gone to go see a rocket. We're going to launch one today if you want to come see it. And John tries to make up an excuse. So I'm, I'm pretty busy. I got a lot of work to catch up on. And Homer, this is a moment where he does stand up for himself and he says, how come you're never busy when you go to watch Jim play football? And mm-hmm. right at the moment, his father begins to yield and say, okay, what time are you going for? He has to step away for work. So yeah. he he's trying, Homer is trying so hard to be maybe not the son that his father wants him to be because obviously he wants him to be like his brother and go into football or be like him and go into the coal mine. But he's still trying to be somebody who can be loved by his father and Homer's just not certain the way to get there at first. Yeah. It's painful to watch in scenes like that. And the relationship is so interesting where I feel like a lesser film would have played it much more antagonistically throughout. And, you know, there are the moments of, of blowups, but throughout it all, they, they never paint the father as the bad guy. They, they, there's always, even, even when he's kind of at his most irritating, there's always that you can see, there's a lot of like a little bit of regret in his eyes. Like whenever he, maybe he talks down to his son, then he kind of looks out and there's like a bit, a bit of sadness there where he, he, he's just a father, you know, who wants his, you know, he wants his son to, to love the things that he loves. Mm-hmm. And it's gotta be hard for him. You know, someone who, who truly loves the vine and loves what he does and, you know, sees the beauty in this very, you know, salt of the earth kind of lifestyle. And, you know, just wanting his son to make something of his life. And he, for, as far as he can tell, his kids just, wasting it and i love that we get both sides of the story with this film it's clear that homer respects his dad and is proud of his dad as foreman of this mine but he's also very aware of his dad's faults his temper his expectations for homer that really it's not that they're not achievable it's just that they're not homer's goals and it's not what he wants to aspire to and that causes conflict but at the same time that you see this conflict between these characters you see how john is a good man well one he's a good worker and he's a good leader of men but he's a good man too we see at the beginning of the film when he saves a man's life and in the same moment after he makes sure that the man is okay and that he's not going to die he <laughs> yells at him for not paying attention and for nearly killing everyone that's my dad and there's later in the film when somebody says of john if it weren't for your father then a dozen men would have died today And there's another moment where Homer and friends have gotten in trouble for setting a forest fire that they ultimately didn't set. But this is the moment where John says to Homer, I've been mad at you. I've been confused by you, but I've never been ashamed of you until right now. 
And man, that hurts so much. But in that same moment, right after that, we see Roy Lee getting beat by his stepfather. And he doesn't hesitate to tell Homer to get safely in the car. So he stays out of harm's way and he steps into the situation, gets Roy Lee out of there and threatens the stepfather within an inch of his life to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That seat is so good. Uh, it is so great seeing Chris Cooper, man, all time best. I think, I think this might be my favorite Chris Cooper performance because we see the juxtaposition of both sides of his character in scenes like that, where you see how much of a hard ass he can be to his son. But mm-hmm. at the same time, be that good man that we see and that his workers see in him. Yes. It's very, very, he's so stern, but there's this obvious deep honor to his character that he's always going to do what he believes to be the right thing. No matter you know what, what kind of, how the difficulty or trouble could get him into. You see that <laughs> the way he deals with like the union where he, you know, he's, he's constantly getting into trouble with the town and with the other workers, but he's, he's going to do what he believes to be the right thing. And including that, you know, really awesome moment where he, he does stand up to the, uh, the abusive stepfather at one point in the film obviously he he becomes incapacitated and is unable to work and that's when homer makes this unbelievable sacrifice of dropping out of school giving up rocketry he had already given up rocketry at that point because he he'd gotten in trouble but pushing it aside and saying i'm going down into the mine because we need to provide for the family and he's putting himself in front of his older brother too who originally says he's going to do this because Jim, his brother, has just gotten a football scholarship. And so if he was to drop out of school to be the, quote, proper man of the house, older brother person, then he would lose that scholarship. And Homer, recognizing that, sacrifices his own livelihood in order to be the person to provide for the family. And mm-hmm. that earns so much respect from his father. It's 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 so interesting to see how differently John talks to Homer after that moment. Mm-hmm. and how much respect he all of a sudden has for his son after having almost none for him earlier in the film. And that in the same way is just as heartbreaking because it's, it's like, I did not respect you, my son until you finally did what I asked you to do. And it took that, it took Homer giving up so much for his father to respect any part of him. And the tragedy of that is that Homer isn't being himself in those moments to be respected. And even even with that, that was something I really noticed in this last viewing, how their relationship almost like completely improves. Even when his father is, you know, he's still, you know, uh, incapacitated in bed and they're just, you know, talking about things, you know, things about the mind. And they they, they finally have this thing that they connect could connect over. Like They had so little in common before, but now they have this this one thing that they now have come together. And this relationship that had been almost non-existent throughout the film is just blossoms and you know, there's obviously the, the very the very sad aspect that you that you mentioned but also i i honestly found it kind of kind of beautiful in a way as well just where the, just this thing that had the fact that they, they just did not know how to get to connect with each other and now that they have this one thing they can have that and you could you you see just how much he does respect his son and loves his son obviously with those caveats you mentioned as well but i, I still found it quite beautiful I agree that it does have its beauty, but it's it goes away so quickly when, goodness, I started thinking about the How to Train Your Dragon parallel between Hiccup and Stoic, mm-hmm. <laughs> when Hiccup goes into dragon training and does really well, and Stoic says, oh, we finally have something to talk about, <laughs> and then they have nothing to talk about because Hiccup's heart's not in it, and it's not quite to that extreme here. Homer does say, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it would be, yada, yada, that kind of stuff, but John... When Homer 
picks up rocketry again. He he uses the the textbook that Miss Riley gave him to figure out the math and realize, oh, there's no way it could have been us who started that fire. And so we're innocent to begin with. And I can continue going back to building rockets. That respect that John had for him goes away pretty quickly. First, he tries to just play it off like, oh, okay, I respect your hobby, son, but skipping out on work, that's not okay. So let's just go back down to the mine and set things right. And you can work the graveyard shift tonight. And that's when Homer stands up for himself. And again, he says, I'm never going down there again. That's your life, dad. That's not my life. And the next time we see them interacting with each other, it's it's not even a lack of respect at this point. It's more of outright disrespect of John towards his son mm-hmm. because he, Homer not only is pursuing rocketry, but he's completely shut the door on pursuing life in the mine, but beyond that pursuing being like his dad, or at least that's the way he sees it. I like the way the the film kind of juxtaposes Homer, you know, he's getting his chance. He's leaving as John's life is kind of crumbling with the strike and not not people shooting at their house. Like as his, his life is falling apart, his son's like running away and he probably no doubt views that as something of of betrayal. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But the, the, the payoff of him finally coming around on helping Homer, Homer has made it to the, the national competition science fair in Indianapolis. He needs help because his stuff gets stolen and he's, he needs the cylinder the the launch canister, he needs another one built by mm-hmm. what is it? Mr. Owen, I think his name is Bolden. I think. Bolden. That's right. Yeah. Mr. From Mr. Bolden. And another great character. Yeah. So many he, great little characters in this movie. Yeah. As, as well as uh Bukowski, Mr. Bukowski, really great. These small character actors, but when Elsie goes in past the picket line, because the miners are on strike at this point. And she finally tells, she passes on this information to John, uh, which was a quote from Homer early in the film saying he loves the mine more than he loves his own family. And she says, I didn't want to believe it, but if you don't help your son now, then I'm going to leave you. And his initial response is, well, where will you go? Not, Oh, I'm sorry. Let me fix this. The way she stands up for herself and then walks out. You see this sort of grin play at his face. Like, okay, that's the woman I fell in love with. Uh, she's right. And hearing his hearing his son's words sort of echoing around in his head about how he loves the mind more than his family, I think that's the moment where it really does hit him how much he has let his son down in not mm-hmm. supporting him through all this ordeal. And so he does make amends with the miners and agreeing to terms with the union. And he does get Mr. Bolden to help him build what is needed and ship it off that night. Maybe he doesn't fully understand it. He doesn't until the final scene of the film, but it it's finally him helping his son to achieve his dreams for the first time in the film. And I love that there's like no big moment of tears and hugging at the end. It's like the, the respect that, that is gained is very quiet. It's very subtle, but you know, it's, it's so obviously there. You know, just in that final moment, you know, putting his hand on his son's shoulder as they watch the rocket. Just, I love that this film has so many opportunities to get really just schmaltzy and cheesy and, over the top, but I feel like it always chooses to underplay it, which is one of the reasons I think it stands up so well on repeat viewings and, and didn't kind of go the way of so many childhood favorites. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of things being underplayed, that speech that Homer has to his dad before that final rocket launch, where he visits them at the coal yard and says, Hey, we're launching our last rocket at five. I'd love it if you could be there. And then when John says, Oh, I'm, I'm busy. I can't make it. 
Homer's just like, okay, whatever. And he walks off, but then he comes back and he says, because at this point, John says, heard you met your big hero, Mr. Von Braun. You shook his hand and you didn't even know it. And that triggers something in Homer because he never saw Von Braun as his hero. He was somebody to admire. He was somebody to aspire to. But he tells his dad, without strictly saying it, that he is his hero, that you are the man I want to be like. And despite all of our differences, we're more alike than you realize because the way I see you working and the way I see you sticking to what you believe in, those are the things that I carry with me every day. And I can only hope to be half as great a man as you are. Mm -hmm. And that he could have just outright said, oh, you're my hero, dad. He doesn't go quite that far. He comes just short of it. And so I really love that the payoff of that moment and the way uh, John is sort of just left there chewing his lip like, oh, well, he really put me in my place as, <laughs> as a father. And uh, it, it does finally strike that chord with him. And you, you mentioned uh, how great is Elsie Hickam? Oh, she is so wonderful. And I, I'm not overly familiar with that actress, to be honest. She doesn't have seem to have done much after this or nothing, nothing huge. Right. I'm looking at her Wikipedia page. She appeared in True Detective recently in season three. But other than that, haven't really seen her in much or anything. But she's great. She portrays perfectly the sort of hardened wife of a coal miner. Like, I mean, it's not like that's a stereotype necessarily, but she plays it the way I would imagine it, Mm -hmm. which is opinionated and loving of her son's and standing steadfast by the side of her husband. But she she does have a lot of personality to her, and she does have a lot of, I don't know, kind of the same bullheadedness. I wrote down that she's just a, a formidable woman. Yeah, she, she is. Yeah, formidable for sure. And I like the way the family dynamic is kind of shown, where John obviously gravitates towards Jim, you know, through their, their shared love of football. And, you know, they'll, they're, they'll be there watching the game, and then it's Homer and it kind of his mother. In the kitchen, I love the, the motif in the background of she's always painting the beach on the kitchen, kind mm-hmm. of just you know she 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 doesn't want to be here. This this is not the life that you know she would have chosen probably if she you know had her perfect life. But you know she's still sta- you know standing by her family, and she'll you know if she can she'll bring this little bit of light into her kitchen, or just like at, at every you know argument scene between Homer and John, she's just kind of there watching the background, <laughs> and when uh. Homer storms out. She'll just give her husband just that look like you need to make this right. Right. And I, I love the way he, kind of, he, he always knows it too. Uh, he, he kind of always deflates a little bit when she looks at him. <laughs> and it is her who eventually convinces him to do something to mend that relationship with his son. So a great, strong character. But speaking of that, Miss Riley is fantastic. Played by Laura Dern. She knows exactly what to say to Homer to encourage him. She's so enabling of his curiosities. She's the one who drops the information about the winners of the county fair going to the national competition and potentially getting scholarships. And that's what opens Homer up to the possibility of exploring rocketry. She -hmm. gives him the information he needs to be successful. She says, oh, you want to go to the science fair? Well, guess what? You need to improve your math first. And over Everything else, the biggest thing that she does for him that his father doesn't do until way late in the game is believe in him. Yeah, his math might not be up to snuff, but you want to know about rockets? Here's a book about missile design. And he tells her, and this was one of the first moments to like really make me tear up, <laughs> was he, he says, that's the best gift I've ever received. Because to him, it's more than a book. It's the gift of belief 
and encouragement and chasing your dreams. This is right after the morning breakfast scene where he was at home and his father just completely shuts down the notion of him being interested in Dr. Werner von Braun. He gets the signed picture from his mother Mm -hmm. and John is just like, oh, well, not that important. I don't know why you put your mind into this stuff anyways, whatever. And Elsie has to say, it's his birthday. And that at least gets John to shut up, but he doesn't Mm -hmm. apologize. And then Homer goes off and he gets this great encouragement and gift of belief from his teacher. I like how she, she doesn't like do any of the work for them. She All she does is just kind of point them in the right direction, just give them little pokes of encouragement and, and motivation here and there to, you know, for, for them to be able to take themselves to where they need to go. The principal character is a little bit of a humbug at first, too. He tells Miss Riley to not be giving the students false hope. Your job is to give them an education, not false hope. But the thing about that is that it's not false if you actually believe in them Mm -hmm. and you believe in what they can accomplish. And that's exactly what Miss Riley has for Homer and for his friends. She also shows him some tough love, which she apologizes for later. But when when Homer drops out of school to work in the mine, he tries to get her attention to say something to her and she just sort of walks off. And she later, when it's revealed that she's sick and has Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, she apologizes and she she says you know as a teacher I, I look at you and I look at your friends and I say I, I think to myself that if you are able to go to Indianapolis and you're able to win that science fair then I will have considered my career as a teacher worth it because that's that's my job is to inspire that kind of pursuit of achievement she tells Homer that she's proud of him long before his father ever does she does eventually bring the principal around to supporting Homer and his friends and Towards the end of the film, when she's basically lying on her deathbed, we get that really, really sad speech. This is after Homer has brought home the the medal for winning the science mm-hmm. fair. And she heartbreakingly talks about how, you know, every year I'm going to tell my students how I taught Homer Hickam and the Rocket Boys. And like I said, she's like lying on her deathbed right now. She isn't going to have year after year of students. But still, in saying that, she shows exactly how proud of Homer she is and his accomplishments. Laurie Dern just has the most like beautiful, joyous smile. Like whenever you know, those moments where she is telling him you know, she's proud of him and just being encouraging, she, oh, she's, she's just so wonderful. Um, and speaking of a uh, principal Turner, I like that, you know, even in the first three quarters of the film, he's fairly antagonistic, but even he comes around and it's him, you know, that, that takes them over to the Welch police department to help prove their innocence. And at, you know, the science fair, he's standing right there cheering for them. And I, I, again, I love that the film, this film has no antagonist. Like there's no villain other than maybe like the mine itself. Like they're all just complicated, flawed people, you know, trying to make a life in this really difficult place. I really do like that. He turns himself around too. And it, it never feels like it was a cliche turnaround. It was just like, oh, well, you know, if I listened to Miss Riley and if I listened to these boys in the first place, then maybe they would have been further along in their journey at this point. And so the moment that he is able to make amends, he he does it. He says, Homer, when we get back to the school after leaving this police station, you need to meet me in my office because in order to compete in a science fair as a member of this school, you're going to have to be a member of the school. And so he gets him re-enrolled and is immediately trying to make amends in helping these boys to make it to the science fair in Indianapolis. Chris Ellis is just one of those wonderful character actors that you've seen in at least a dozen movies, but uh, he's, you know, he's great here as well. Now, what about the group of friends? There's Quentin, there's Roy Lee, and there's Sherman. Do you have anything to say about these guys? I love them all. Like they're, they're, they're not as well fleshed out as some of the other characters, but I think 
we get enough hints that each one has their own private life and they they feel like real people even if we don't see everything about them but they're all they're a lot of fun together i'm uh, just w- watching montages of them building rockets and rockets exploding and just being <laughs> goofy friends it's it's really fun i like how roy lee and sherman especially latch on to the pursuit of building rockets when it's really not their cup of tea either to begin with mm-hmm. because they they latch onto Homer's idea of this being a new out for them other than football. And they are opposed to talking with Quentin because it's going to destroy their social lives and they're not going to be able to get the girls they want. Yeah. But, but then they, they think about it and, oh, well, the alternative is we're going to graduate high school and we're going to work in the mines for the rest of our lives. And so in joining Homer, they not only join in the, the pursuit of rocketry, but they also gain a friend in Quentin because Quentin was was the social outcast. He was the person that was almost a pariah in the school. He sat by himself at lunch, and it was a big deal when Homer sat down with him at the table. But despite their initial reluctance in befriending Quentin, when Homer goes down to the mines and he's down there by himself and the others are still at school, their pursuits have led them to legitimate friendships. And the three of them, Quentin, Royley, and Sherman, come to visit Homer during their lunch. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's nice to see that this this pursuit of something unified them and made them genuine friends. Yeah. I think Roy, Roy Lee in particular is a lot of fun where you could see he wants so badly to be the traditional jock and you know, he's got this you know, horrible, broken down, useless car, but he obviously just hasn't for the status it provides him. I and mean, he's always just trying, trying to be the cool guy, but he's so clearly not. And it's kind of adorable. <laughs> and we get the, the little tidbits of their, their outside lives too. And about how miserable their situation in Coldwood really is and the life they are trying to escape, which is, both Sherman and Roy Lee, I believe, have stepfathers. Or Sherman, at least, doesn't have his father. Uh, it's revealed that he died. Mm-hmm. But Roy Lee has this abusive stepfather who's a drunk. And so they're not only trying to escape a life of eternal work in the mines, but they're also escaping home life situations that are less than ideal. Yeah. I mean, it's same with Quentin. Quentin's living in a, a small, like, trailer home with one bedroom shared by, like, three or four children. He's got this desk perched in the corner that he has to step over family to get to. So everybody in getting their scholarships through the science fair is escaping to something that is going to prove to be a better life for them. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other characters you wanted to mention or talk about? Um, I guess uh, there's a uh, Mr. Bykoski, uh, who is just, you know, he's the guy, the uh, landlord from Spider-Man. Right. That's, what, that I know That's the only from. other thing I know him from. <laughs> uh, and he's just adorable. Very, very sad when he eventually gets it his relationship and the mutual respect that he and Homer have, like, you know, speaks of probably a, a long friendship, probably since Homer was a child. The whole, the whole cast and all the little side characters, like it, they, everyone, you know, they're talking in these really exaggerated uh, West Virginia accents and it could so easily just turn into cliches. But I feel like Joe Johnson made sure that all the people feel like people. And when you look at each one of them, it feels like there's a story. It really, gives it you know this sense of a town and this place that is you know, slowly dying but there's it's, it's sketched with so much love that's something i really enjoy about the progression of this movie as as the rocket boys find more success in building their rockets and having successful launches the more people buy in and so with each rocket launch we see their equipment becomes a little bit more upgraded their mm-hmm. launches become a little bit more successful they go from having to light a match a foot away from the rocket to having a spool of thread and electric switches and all that kind of stuff. 
And it's because of the contributions of the people of the town who are coming out to support them. By the end of the film, they have cheerleaders yeah. out there cheering them on on their rocket launch. So it's come full circle. He was pursuing football at the beginning of the movie, but now here he is launching rockets, doing something he actually enjoys doing, something that's actually going to take him away from this place. And there's cheerleaders there. <laughs> not to say that they're not at the football game, but I don't remember the last time I saw cheerleaders at a NASA launch. You know, it, it, it really says something about the, the way the town buys into Homer and his pursuits. Yeah, I really like that the way that the change in fortune was so subtly you know, done just in the background. It's never called attention to it. Another thing I noticed was that, you know, it's a big deal in the beginning of the film where he, he uses company time to weld the rocket. And then in the second half of the film, they're just right there in the machine shop. And you know his dad knows it. He's he's, he's letting it go. You know, he's the one who gave him the concrete. Like, you can just see, like, the, the change over the course of the film that's like never commented on it. I think that you know, helps the passage of time be very well shown. Honestly, what this movie really makes me want to do is sit down and read Rocket Boys. <laughs> so I, I, I'm adding that to my reading queue. I read it a while back. It's pretty good. Is it? Awesome. It's, it's, this, the actual story is a little different, which is always a little disappointing, but. Yeah. Well, when I read, I like to alternate between fiction and nonfiction a lot of the time. And so uh, I would often read celebrity autobiographies is something I really enjoyed checking out like Michael Caine and Michael J. Fox and all that kind of stuff. I know uh, Homer Hickam has since written a lot of other, uh, like several, I think three or four other books about, you know, Colwood and all. I think it has like a, what he calls like the Colwood trilogy. So there are other books besides uh, Rocket Boys as well. Yeah, I will have to look into all of those. Now, before we get into the, the sort of takeaways of the film, let's talk just a little bit about the music. You said you really like it. What, what stands out about the music here? There's the score, which I think is fantastic. There's also the soundtrack. We can talk about both. What, what is that musical genre? Is that, is that like, is that early rock and roll or what? Do you know what that would be? You're a bit more musically knowledgeable than I am. Early rock and roll, maybe a little bit of doo-wop kind of stuff. I mean, it's 50s music. It, it's very firmly in the 50s. You've got some platters. You've got, I'm trying to think of some other songs. The platters is the first one that comes to mind. The uh, Fast Dominoes, Ain't That a Shame, Yak the Yak, uh, yeah. uh, Speedo by the Cadillacs. So those are the ones that really stood out to me. The, the, mu the musical montages of them doing things with the, the classic 50s music is just delightful. It is. I, I, I love 50s music and I listen to it actually fairly regularly. That and 40s music, like in my car, actually. If I were to get in my car right now and not plug in my phone and put it on a podcast, 40s radio would be playing. <laughs> and so this is very much in my wheelhouse of things that I enjoy listening to. So that's great. But then we have the score by Mark Isham. And again, Mark Isham isn't a name that a lot of people would be familiar with but he's probably scored things that you've watched. What really stood out to me about the score here is that I think, at least to my memory, it's almost entirely strings. Like it's not a, mm -hmm. a big brass kind of film. It's, it's very chamber orchestra kind of feeling, especially at the beginning. There's lots of like solo viola and violin that builds into more strings joining in. Yeah. It's got a kind of somberness to it. As we get the the mix of the dreary shots of the coal mine and its workers, coupled with the the narration from the news broadcast at the beginning with the launch of Sputnik, just the overall score is so string focused. You get moments of like extreme warmth that I think you can only get from a string orchestra, and it really resonates through you in the emotional moments of the film. I don't have specific track titles, but just moments that I wrote down in the film where the music was a real highlight for me. There's the accident at the coal mine. There's searching for the missing rocket. That that one's a little bit more up tempo, yeah. Uh, but still strings, f string focused. But then the 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 two like 
gut punches with the music are winning the science fair and when Homer tells his dad that he's his hero. And then subsequently at the launch pad, when his father pushes the button for the launch and you have that music swell there too. Mm -hmm. It is so beautiful. Like it is fantastic, really listenable, really emotional music without ever feeling like it's manipulating you. Mm -hmm. What, what else do you have to say about it? I have not listened to or thought about this score like in the last eight years, but then when I watched this movie, it all just came back. That, that main theme is so lovely. And I like what you said about it doesn't feel manipulative. And I think that was one of the aspects of this film that, that kept it feeling grounded, where I feel like if it had this giant bombastic score that was really pushing for the emotion, then I think it would have felt a bit more trite. But this, we have this very low-key, somber piece of music. It's, it's also very soulful and very emotional, but it never it never feels like it gets you know ahead of itself. It's, there's a quiet... And I think, even I think a sadness to it is really acknowledging the fact that, th- you know, this town, this little piece of America that we're seeing, it's dying, it's going away, and it's soon going to be lost. But it's also, you know, it's helping us to fall in love with it all the same. And um, I think it, th- th- that music is just a big part of this film's success, in my opinion. I agree. I think a, a good word to describe it maybe would be quaint, fitting of the town itself, which has this sort of sense of isolation. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't. I can think of only like a small handful of movies that's that feature scores that are so string focused as this one. And it, it just works so well. It, it adds a completely unique quality to the film that other films don't have because they are a lot heavier in their orchestration and their instrumentation. And going back to the songs, I think my, my favorite musical piece is the, uh, the montage of rocket explosions. I forget, I forget <laughs> which song it was, but like whenever I think of this movie, the first thing I think of is that montage of all the rockets exploding. Isn't that one yakety yak? I'm trying to remember for sure. It might be. Oh no, it's uh, it's ain't that a shame? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, by Fats Domino. Yeah, <laughs> that is a good montage. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and go into our final section, impact, where we talk about the things that impact us or the people around us, and then the takeaways from the film. So, are there any particular moments that that lingered with you a little bit more heavily? Um, all of it. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but even in over these last few years, it's it's honestly kind of come to me and more and more to me, despite not having rewatched it recently, just because of you know the the subjects it covers and in some ways how it like mirrors like things that have happened in my own life. So it's always just meant a lot to me. A few scenes that really stood out to me: the scene where Miss Riley gives Homer the book. I already talked about. The scene where his mom goes to see the rocket launch for the first time and everyone else is there to see. There are cheerleaders. Their equipment's more upgraded than the time before and the time before because everyone's there to support them. And seeing his mom's astonishment, it's not like she didn't believe in her son, but being there and witnessing what he's accomplished in working on this thing on his own and with his friends really triggers something in her. And the way her jaw drops as she watches this thing that her son created launch mm-hmm. is really inspiring. Then there's the scene where John stepped in and protected Roy Lee from his stepfather stands out. And then obviously, obviously the, the final scene where John shows up for the launch of the final rocket. And it's in the middle of Homer's speech that he walks up when he says, I'm about to dedicate this launch to my mom and to my, wow, my dad is here. I'm I'm dedicating this to my dad. And that is such a powerful moment. And I, I, I love you. You mentioned this moment earlier, how simple it is when as they stare up at the rocket which is launching far higher 
and far farther than any rocket they'd done up to this point. They're looking up at it. Everyone in the town, we see glimpses of them looking up from wherever they're sitting or standing and they see the rocket too. And John just places his arm around his son. And it's like this moment where we finally see the understanding that John sees how much this meant to his son and why it meant so much to him and how special what he's accomplished really is. Because I I think of things in my life that I'd heard about or I'd read about or I'd seen on TV that didn't give me that level of impact until I witnessed it for myself in person. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 the cliche that stands out in my mind is the Grand Canyon. Like the Grand Canyon, it's huge. You see pictures of it in textbooks and it's the one thing I've seen in my life that I could only describe as indescribable because you don't fathom the beauty of a place like that until you see it with your eyes in person, you're standing right there looking over the cliffs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of equate that with what John is witnessing here. He had no idea what his son was doing except for playing with rockets until he stood there, pushed the button himself and was able to see what his son has accomplished. And in putting his arm around his son, he is acknowledging him. He's apologizing to him. He communicates so much that simple gesture. Yeah. Going back to actually one scene that really stuck out to me this last viewing is when, you know, after Homer's dreams have been crushed and he's just going into the mine. Um, it was funny because it really kind of paralleled the period of my own life where I, I went into an industrial job, which I was completely unsuited for. I spent a couple of years in that and the whole thing, just you know, the, the, the boots, the hard hats going into the elevators, like it all just, it was since I hadn't seen the movie in like seven or eight years, that whole section was like deja vu for me. And you know, just the, the, like that kind of soul crushing job that you're just not suited for, you know, it really impacted me this time. And, you know, having, having since left that job to pursue a career that I'm far more interested in, um, it feels like elements of my life have kind of, mirrored this film that I've always loved, which is pretty interesting. I definitely know that feeling too. My my first job after graduating college was as a substitute teacher. And then from there, uh, everybody knows I have a band background. I, I was studying to be a band director. My first actual job was as an orchestra director. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing and I had fun doing it. I learned a lot, but it wasn't something that I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. And so it was when I finally stepped into a band job teaching band instruments, doing something that I'd been studying for for half my life. that I, was, I could finally take in that big breath and take comfort in knowing that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I resonate with that as well. But then sort of some of like the greater themes that come out of this movie, there's the pursuit of your passions and knowledge and striving for just the greater quote, more striving for more always really stands out and standing up for yourself and for what you believe in, even, even against those that it's hard to stand up against. We, we see Homer stand up to his father multiple times in this movie. And there are moments when it's heartbreaking, like right before he's supposed to go to Indianapolis and his father's giving him a lot of attitude about trying to find the suitcase and leaving us behind and going on and doing your own thing instead of the family thing or whatever. And there's another moment, that other moment where he stands up to his father and it's not, to yell at him, it's to say, no, dad, you're my hero. I can't understand how you saw this so wrong all this time. I admire Von Braun, but you are my hero. Those are two different moments where Homer stands up for himself and for what he's doing. And so I I really admire that about him. I admire that he sticks to his guns and is passionate about what he's passionate about. And I also appreciated the love, like the way 
you know, have a love and respect for where you came from. <laughs> like, even if you don't really belong there, it never feels demeaning to the people who stayed behind. You can tell that Homer Hickam, you know, as an adult now, still very much appreciates the world he came from and you know, the people that, you know, that raised him and, you know, gave him the ability to follow his dreams. There's no, it doesn't feel like any kind of cynicism or bitterness, even to, to a place that he hated as a child. That's something that stood out to me as well. I was thinking in those closing moments of the movie when he was about to launch and he's giving that speech and he holds up the medal and he says, this is for Colwood. That's somebody who's proud to be from where he's from. Mm -hmm. And yes, he's proud to have sort of escaped being trapped there, but he's never going to forget the lessons that that place gave him. And even the launch site, they call that Cape Colwood. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of love for his hometown and for his family and for where he came from, even though he's aspiring to be beyond that. So I, I like that, that you pointed that out. Anything else? Any other moments of impact or things that you just want to say in closing? I gotta say that this has given me so much respect for Joe Johnson as a filmmaker. I think this is probably my favorite film of his. We didn't really get much into the filmmaking, but there are just so many lovely touches and little bits of direction and that he brought to it that I um, that I hadn't noticed before. It makes me want to explore more of his filmography. Obviously, I've seen Jumanji and Captain America. I'm very familiar with the Rocketeer's music, but I don't know if I've ever watched the movie, so I'm going to be queuing that up on Disney Plus very soon because I need more of this, maybe not optimism. I don't think that the message of his films is optimism, but there is that sense of things that seems to be a, a common thread. So I, I look forward to exploring that and his other movies as well. Well, if that's all we got, that's the end of the 86th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Contact for the show. We've got facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please continue going over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. Hit that subscribe button so you're notified of new episodes. It's free. And if you have feedback or ideas that you would like to send in longer form, you can always email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Gabe, where can people find you and your work online? So the podcast, my podcast is a Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can find that at franchisefatiguepodcast.com. Uh, we're on Facebook as Franchise Fatigue Podcast and then Twitter as at Franchise Pod. Uh, for me personally, probably the best place would be Letterboxd. Uh, I'm there's Gabriel Green. I log and review most of the films I see. And um, yeah, that's where you can find us. Excellent. And I, I plugged it with James's episode last week. Definitely go check out Franchise Fatigue. Listen back to episodes of Underrated. Two guys talking about movies they love. What could be better? Thank you. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. There's my other podcast, which has since ended, but it is called An American Workplace. And we talked about every episode of NBC's The Office from 1 to 201. And you can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all, everybody. Thank you once again, Gabriel. It's been a blast talking to you and you can't too. wait to have you and James back on again sometime soon. Thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies.
And seriously, I, I had no clue how emotional this movie was going to make me. <laughs> I, I, I had, didn't either. And I, I had no memory of crying this much <laughs> my last time watching this. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Like, not having watched this in my early teens, just like the way my life has kind of followed uh-huh. some of the, the rhythms of this film. Uh, I, I was... I, I was a weeping mess, but that's okay. I, I enjoy being a weeping mess when I'm watching movies. Yeah. It's just like the ultimate feel good movie. It is. 